Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia at 9.30 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We hope you'll be able to join us, but in the meantime, enjoy this recording of last week's message. Don't you love the concept of justice, or at least the idea that people get what they deserve, you know, especially when someone has done you wrong? You know, like if somebody... If somebody cuts you off in traffic and is driving like real crazy and they cut you off and you're like, oh, you know, don't you just hope there's a police officer up ahead like this ready for them, you know, because they did you wrong and they need to get what they deserve, right? If, if, somebody, if somebody steals, don't you hope that that's going to be made right and that you're going get, to get it come back to you, what they stole, that kind of thing. Like, I love justice, at least when other people have to get it, you know, like if I do something wrong, I don't love it as much for me, but, but I love it when someone's done me wrong and there's this personal sense of justice that, that these things will be made right. But that's not the only kind of justice there is. There's personal justice for sure. There's also like systemic justice and injustice. There are ways in which the system is not stacked up very well for, for some people or some groups of people. Um, even in America, in the land of the free and the home of the brave and the land of opportunity and all that kind of stuff, um, some people have a better shot at things than other people do based on kind of where they come from and where they're, where they're, where they're at. And, and, and there's some systemic injustices that exist even in, in, in a society like ours. So you want justice there too. You want to fix a broken system. But there's also like national or like large ethnic injustices as well that you can look at in the history of the world. Uh, I, I, I saw in the news just recently, um, our, our church is going to be very involved in Turkey and the country of Turkey here uh, in, in, in the years to come. And we're going to do a lot at Advent. We'll tell you more a lot about, about that in the next couple of weeks. But we're going to be involved with Turkey. And so whenever Turkey shows up in the news, I pay attention. And Turkey's been in the news a lot lately. I'm as you are probably aware, it shares a border with Syria, and there's a lot going on there. Um, but th this thing came up, and I was looking at it the other day, and I had heard of this before, but there was, um, there was in Turkey, there was what they called the Armenian Genocide that happened between 1915 and 1923, where I think a million and a half Armenians were, were killed, death marches and, and different stuff that, that happened there. Um, and that's, that's horrible. So if you're an Armenian uh, living in the eastern half of, of Turkey today, um, what do you think about the Turks? What do you think about the, those people who did that to your grandparents or whatever? Um, and and what, what do you hope for when we say justice? What do you hope would be just in that situation? And even today, that's why it was in the news just recently, even today, um, there's, th there's all this controversy surrounding that, and there's all this discussion about, like, did it even happen, and can we even acknowledge it and then call it a genocide a hundred years later? So we're, we're a long way from justice being served in that situation because it's hard to even talk about. Um, and so there, there's, there's personal justice, there's systemic justice and injustice, and then there's this national and sort of eth large ethnic group injustices. And as I, as I look at all that and I think about that, um, I, I don't know that I would have the ability, or if, if I was given the power to like sort of wave the wand and make things right, I don't know that I could do it in any of those situations. And, and, and here's why. Whenever we want justice and there's more than one party involved, there's you know, two things, two parties coming at each other, it is really difficult to know that the nuances of, of, of people and hear both sides of a story and to 100% accurately get what's going on. It's very hard to do that. It's hard to even know your own heart. It's certainly difficult to, to give justice to or, or to judge someone else's heart as well. It's really difficult. And, and so one conviction is that. That's 
very complicated. And two, I, I think if I was in charge of justice sort of on any scale, I think I would get it wrong. Like, 100% sure, I just would not get it right. I don't know that I, my brain powers enough or I have enough wisdom or my shoulders are broad enough to handle the weight that comes with trying to judge someone else's life and, and, get, and get that right. Um, I, and, and I don't know that I would right all the wrongs that are in the world, even if I had the power to do so, and I, or I would do it correctly. So I wonder that about me and, and don't think I could do it. So what I like to do is sort of punt justice off to God and say, well, let, let God handle it. God will sort them out in the end. And I believe that. But here's my concern. And this is one of these things you don't say out loud too often, uh, especially if you're in ministry or whatever. You probably shouldn't say this, but I got a mic and I'm going to say it. So here we go. But here's one of these things I wonder uh, about justice and God. Um, does God get it right all the time? Because if I could put on the God hat, I think I would do things differently. Like, there's abuse, and there's bad things that happen to kids, and there's diseases, and then tsunamis wipe people out, and, and then people treat each other so badly, and there are, there's horrible stuff going on. There's, there's, there's shoot, shootings and, and murder, and there's a lot of rough stuff, and it's very tempting to look at all of that and go, where is the justice? And, and, and to say, I think God is getting this wrong, like, because he, he's not doing it the way I would do it, is, is kind of what we would say. And so I want to be honest about that, and I want to look at this concept of justice, and, and I'll just let you know, this is probably going to take two weeks. We'll sort of introduce it today, and we'll kind of wrap it up next week. But I think it's a, a big deal, and it, and it really comes into play here as we see the book of Esther kind of wrapping up. We've been studying this, this book for the last six weeks or so, and we're going to wrap it up next Sunday. But uh, as we kind of get in towards the end of it, you're going to see something like justice that's going to happen today. And it, 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 this is the moment in the story where it sort of feels good, like you've been cheering for the underdog, and you're going to see some things happen, and it's really cool. Um, but it, it, it's, there's, it's incomplete, and, and, and I want to be honest about that and talk about it. Just to get you up to speed really quickly, Esther is queen of Persia in the year 475 BC. She's married to the king, King Xerxes. Xerxes has a guy who works for him, Haman. He's his number one guy. Haman decides he wants to kill all of Esther's ethnic group, ethnic cleansing of the Jews. Um, he does that because he's annoyed with Esther's cousin Mordecai, who's Jewish. Um, so he convinces the king to issue an edict that on a certain day in a certain month, all the Jews could be killed by whoever wants to kill them in Persia. Big, big empire in the ancient world. Uh, Esther gets word of this from Mordecai, and Mordecai says, you have to stop the king from doing this, or all of your people are going to be killed, and you're going to get killed too. So Esther approaches the king, and she has to do this in a very careful way, because in that culture, uh, you approach the king, and if he's in a bad mood, you could get killed. Even if you're the queen, even if he likes you, it, it could go very badly for you. So she has to be very careful. She prays and she fasts. We talked about this last week. She prays and fasts, and then she goes to the king to say, like, hey, don't kill all the Jews. That was her request. But when she goes to him, what she actually asked him for is, will you come to a banquet at my house or in the palace here? Let me throw a banquet for you and for Haman, his number one in charge guy. So there's a banquet that happens on the first night. It's the king and the queen and Haman. And after that banquet, uh, during that banquet, the king says, all right, what do you want? And she says, come to a banquet again tomorrow night. So she makes another request. She asks for him to come back. In that night between the two banquets, um, uh, uh, Haman Decide, sees Mordecai, Mordecai refuses to bow down to him, Haman decides, I'm, I'm going to go kill Mordecai tomorrow, like I'm going to build these gallows and we're going to have him killed. Um, so that's Haman's decision that night. That same night, the king is having trouble sleeping, he wakes up, they read a book to him, 
We talked about this last week. They read a book to him, and it's the Chronicles of the King. It's all the things that have gone on in the kingdom, trying to help his insomnia, help him sleep. And they read about how Mordecai had saved the king earlier with something that had gone on. And the king hears that, and he's like, ooh, Mordecai's actually kind of awesome. So he gets together with Haman and says, Haman, you need to parade Mordecai around the street and, and show him off as someone that the king delights to honor. This is weird for Haman because Haman hates Mordecai and wants to have him killed, and instead he has to parade him around like a hero. That's where we left it last week, um, and, and it takes us to the second banquet then that happens here, um, which we'll read about, and it picks up, and this is where Esther's going to make the request of the king to, to really set things right in the kingdom. Uh, starting with uh, Esther chapter 7, we will start with verse 1. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So again, she's asked. This is the third time she's been asked, What do you want? What do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. And this time, she decides to really go for it. Uh, notice that they're drinking wine. That shows up all through the story. It's all through the book. There's a lot of alcohol in this book for whatever reason. It was just telling you the way it was. Um, verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Okay, whoa. All right, first of all, she butters him up a little bit. Hey, you know, if it's okay, I mean, this is the way you're going to need to approach the king in, in a situation, and she's very careful with this, with her words. If it's okay, if, if, if I'm pleasing to you, if we have a good relationship here, here's the thing. My people have been sold to be annihilated, um, and then she even says, you know, if we were slaves for you, I wouldn't even bother you with this, because you losing all your slaves would be really bad. Sorry. We're not, so if it would be okay, if it's not too much to ask, you know, uh, you know can, you, can you help with this situation? This is not a good thing, right? So she lays that out to him first. In verse 5, then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? Okay, so you get the impression he's getting a little irritated. He's a couple drinks in now, and, and, and she's kind of like, you know... This is, we're going to be annihilated. And you, you, you sense the rage kind of building in him. He's like, wait a second. Your people, your people, my queen, your people are going to be annihilated? Who's doing this? Now remember, Haman's in the room. Haman and the king and queen are all having a meal together. And, and, and he's like, man, who would even plan such a thing? And then Verse 6, and, and Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Now, if there was a moment I could be a fly on the wall in the Old Testament, it would be this moment. I mean, how did that go? When she said, yeah, Haman did it. Did he choke on his soup? Did he drop his spoon? Was he like, uh, I mean, you, you got to think he's like wetting himself at this point because she just outed him in front of the king and said, this is the guy. This is the, the king's angry. And she's like, it's, it's his fault. It's crazy. Look what happens. Verse 7. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and, 
You can picture this though, right? And went into the palace garden. He's like, I need to catch my breath. Steps outside. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king, you think? And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Okay, so he gets up from his wine drinking, he steps outside into the garden to cool off a little bit. During that time, Haman falls down in front of Esther and begs for his life onto her couch. The king walks back in, and coincidentally, this doesn't look good, that Haman's laying on the couch with Esther, and he's like, man, you're going you're gonna to assault my, my, my queen right in my presence? Like, how dare you get one of those, like, coincidental, weird, lucky, unlucky coincidence things, right? And he's like, I can't believe you would do this. And as he's saying this, like, I, who, you know, who do you think you are? Some guy who's standing nearby, always helpful, I suppose. He's just like, you know, Haman has some gallows that he made at his house. You could just, I'm just saying, he just made them yesterday. They're fresh or whatever. And the king's like, good idea. Let's hang him on those. And he is taken and hung on those. Now we think hanging, we think like English gallows, like that kind of thing. It's actually probably more like they like stick you on a spike. Like not better. I'm just saying it might not have been a swinging kind of thing if you want to get a mental image. Um, there, you're welcome. Uh, so, uh, and then, um, and then, so Haman is killed and all of his stuff. And remember, if you remember last week, Haman bragged at a dinner party about all of his stuff. So all of that is now handed over to Esther who gives it to Mordecai. And so Mordecai has now gotten everything from, from Haman and all of Haman's stuff has been handed over. Uh, we talked about a couple weeks ago, Haman's chief sin, his biggest issue is his pride. And we always say pride comes before fall, right? Or comes before you hanging from the gallows, I guess. Um, it does not go well for, for the prideful. And the scripture is clear about this from, for begin, from beginning to end that you need to address pride in your life. Yes, there's anger. Yes, there's lust. There's all sorts of sins in our lives. But at the root of so much of that is pride. And if you don't address it, it's going to go badly for you. The Bible says, humble yourself before the Lord. It doesn't say, let God humble you, because if God has to do it, it's going to go poorly. You're not going to like how God does it. And Haman had opportunities to step off of this thing and not do this, and he just kept going down that road, and eventually, um, God is working behind the scenes here and, and intervenes, and, and Haman's pride leads to his own, his own death. Now, that uh, sort of wraps up that piece of it uh, with Haman, but it doesn't address the problem, which is still that on a particular day, months from now, the Jews are going to be slaughtered. There's an edict out there for that. And so Esther comes back to the king and, and asks him again, verse 5. Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, 
and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes. Okay, four qualifiers she puts on that. Wow. Like, um, she's, she's got she's to go gently into talking to the king. So she's like, you know, if it wouldn't be too much, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Um, she's actually a good negotiator here. You know, she's kind of laying some things out, conceding a lot, and going, you know, maybe if you could do this, that would be really helpful. Um, verse, verse, uh, so verse 7 here. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So the king kind of delegates here. He's like, write whatever you want, I'll sign it, right? You go ahead, if you want to write a different edict, you can write that, we'll put my ring on it, it'll be just like I wrote it. Now, you would think they would write a, a, an edict that would say, hey, the last edict where we're supposed to kill all the Jews, just kidding, the king changed his mind. But I guess you don't do that. You don't say, I mean, the king's edict is set, you know, like, no, this is what he said. So they write a, like, a counter edict to go along with it, and they basically write an edict that says that on the day that the Jews are supposed to be destroyed, the Jews can work together before that. They, they had not been able to assemble. They can come together, and then they can fight off of their attackers. They can basically fight for their own lives and, and fend this off so that if they get attacked, they have the king's permission to fight back. So they send out couriers to all the provinces, and, they, and they, they send this out and say, hey, Jews, the, and the Jews have been praying and begging God for months for this. They said, this is how it's going to work. On that day, you can, you can, uh, you can fight back. Um, and then we get to chapter 9, and the, the, that day comes. And so let me just read you a piece of it. We'll finish it next week. But it says this, now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their city throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. So they were allowed to defend themselves, and you see in this moment here then, in chapter 9, that they, that they stepped up. They were attacked, and they fought back, and, and they were victorious. And so... In one way, because this is almost the end of the book, we'll cover some more next week, but in one way, you kind of, the story arc, you kind of finish here and you go, okay, well, they were going to get attacked, now they're, they're able to fight back, and that's good. Like, yay, it's a happy ending, I guess. Like, um, the people that were going to get killed and, and, and just slaughtered, they're, now they're not. In fact, they got to, they got to fight back. Um, but I have some questions about how God works in this. Um, because it's not clean, it's actually pretty messy. Um, 
I actually talked to, um, uh, some of you have heard Dr. Weatherly. He's spoken on this stage a couple times before. He was here back in the spring. I, I spoke to him about this, and I was like, yeah, this Esther thing's not incredibly satisfying. Like, I've been going through this. Like, you want to be satisfied here at the end and be like, hey, Mordecai gets all of Haman's stuff, and that's great, and the Jews get to defend themselves, that's great. And he goes, yeah, it leaves you feeling icky. It's, it's not, it, it doesn't wrap up in a really nice way. Because I, I start thinking things like, okay, just because someone wanted all the Jews killed, does it make it better that they get to kill them back? Like, oh, they planned genocide. That didn't work out. Instead, they all got slaughtered, those who were planning the genocide. Like, I don't, I mean, I, I guess it doesn't feel good rooting for that. I mean, if you're the Jews and you read this, you go, we win. What if you're the Persians? What if you're friends of the Persians? What if you're anybody else than the Jews and you read this? You sort of go like, mm, this is kind of, this ends kind of rough. Um, the genocide is bad, but the reverse of it is somehow okay. This just doesn't fit very cleanly. And I've, I've said this from the beginning. There's some moral ambiguity here. It doesn't fit cleanly with good guys and bad guys. It's easy to, it's easy to say, oh, King Ahasuerus or Xerxes, he's a monster. Fine. Haman's a monster. He's bad. Okay, we can say that. But like Esther's not perfect. She is not the model of a good Jewish girl. There's some good things that she does, and there's some ways she relies on God, but she's not perfect. Neither is Mordecai. They're not, they're not perfect either. They, they got their own, own things. I mean, if God is writing this story, he's sure writing it with some crooked pens. And it's, it's, it's weird. I think if you sort of, and I had to kind of wrap my head around this, if you go back and look at the grand history of what's going on um, and try to put this in historical context. This is happening in Persia in 475-ish BC. But if you go back a thousand plus years, uh, you'll find God calls Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to build a great nation out of you. And so God uses this guy Abraham and out of him will eventually come the Israelites. Well, the problem with that is Abraham's got some issues. He's sleeping with his servant girl and having kids with her. And there's like this whole thing going on. It's not awesome. He's going to sacrifice his kid and that gets all weird. And, it, and God intervenes with that and, and stops that and whatever. And then um, the Israelites become slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Well, that's a bad turn of events for, the, for the, these people of God that, that are supposed to be following him. He lets them be slaves for 400 years. That's not good. And then finally, uh, the people cry and, and beg God for, for, for deliverance, and God sends a guy named Moses, and they end up leaving, leaving Egypt, and they wander through the desert for 40 years until they eventually land in about 1400 BC in what the land that is we would modern day call Israel on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. Well, they fight with all their neighbors there. That's the conquest. There's battles. There's all sorts of rough stuff that happens there. And you think it goes well for the Israelites, except for the next thousand years from 1400 BC to about 400 something when we're reading this, it doesn't go well for them. They only have a few periods where things are actually okay, where they get to live in their land in peace. Mostly they get invaded because Israel, if you look at it on a map, is at the crossroads of every major ancient civilization. They all can just go right through Israel. And so they're always constantly attacking Jerusalem. They get ransacked in 722 BC. They get ransacked again in 586 BC. They're at war with their neighbors. They don't have a lot of peace. They're often, Jerusalem gets destroyed and people get carried off. So they're carried off, at, to, the Jews end up in Babylon, the modern day Iraq, that area. They get carried off over there and, and kind of live among the Babylonians there. And they get carried off into Persia as well. And they're, and they're having to live in this place that is not their own country, which is where we, which is where we see this whole Esther story. And and they may get justice in this moment where they're not killed and they get to fight back and all that, but it's not ultimate justice. They're still stuck there 
in a country that's not their home. They're still an oppressed minority that's far from home. And who's to say that the next king doesn't come along and do something stupid and want to have them killed also? It's, it's just unsatisfying. I think when we cry out for justice, what we want is retribution. We want the bad guys to get it. You did me wrong, I, someone needs to pay you back. That's the way we think of justice. Justice is retribution. Uh, if you kill me, or if you kill someone that I know and love, then you will be killed. And that's why we have a death penalty in a lot of places. It's like, it's a retribution idea. It, we either take your life or we take your whole life from you by imprisoning you for life. But it's the idea of you took a life, therefore your life is going to be taken. And that idea of justice is ancient. I mean, the Jews believed it, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In, in the Old Testament law, but not just the Jews. Everybody in the ancient world was kind of doing that. If you read the Code of Hammurabi, you've probably heard of that in history class, uh, and other ancient codes all point to this idea that justice, it works like retribution. There's payback. And Esther, the book of Esther, is set squarely in that world of, of just payback. And, and it seems like as you read it, well, then the Jews get to come out on top. But that's not satisfying, I think. Because life is a lot more complicated than that. Life is not actually made up of purely good and purely bad people. Oh, this person's all good, means all their motives are good all the time. No, this person's all bad, everything they do is horrible. No, like they had reasons for doing what they're doing too. It's a lot more complicated. People are nuanced. And so what can we learn? What are the lessons we can even take about God's sense of justice in this entire story? And I want to tell you right now, this is not going to end in a satisfying way, Okay. Just the next few minutes, I'm going to leave this hanging and we will, we will wrap it up next week. But I want us to feel a little bit of the tension of this because it, it, is, it is a weird story. Um, and when you think about God's justice, there's some things there we've we got to address. Number one, when we cry out for justice, God hears our cries even if it doesn't seem that way. We talked about this a little bit last week. Just because God is unseen doesn't mean he's absent. And that's important for us because we pray and we ask God and it seems like he's not moving. But he's doing lots of things, and, and there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes. And, and the Jews fasted and prayed, and they begged God, and he heard them, and he delivered for them in this, in this situation. Um, even though they couldn't see him, he hadn't forgotten them just because they were over in Persia. So, so when we cry out for justice, God hears our cries. And, and that's good because you may be crying out for justice right now, and God's taking his time on this. And you've got to remember that he does hear. Which brings us to the second thing. When God brings justice, it might not go exactly like you want it to. There are elements of the Esther story that are unsatisfying. God seems to show up at like the 11th hour. Um, it, takes, it, it takes a while. He doesn't show up as quickly as the Jews would have liked. I mean, if you're praying and fast, if you know this day is going to come and you're going to get slaughtered, and you're praying and fasting and begging God every day and nothing's happening, like that's really unsatisfying and it's terrifying. And he only solves the immediate problem um, like I said, who's to say the next king doesn't come along and do something terrible to them as well? They're still in Persia. They're still exiles living away from their homeland. And in fact, God isn't going to solve that problem for a couple decades. In 450-ish BC, a guy named Ezra is released, and there's a book about him in the Bible. He is released to go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the temple there. And then in 445 BC, Nehemiah goes before the king in Persia, and he is released to go back and start building the walls and rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. And that begins the, the Jews being able to come back to their, to their homeland and, and kind of re, rebuild things there. Um, but, but if you're in Persia in 475 BC and you're crying out 
to God for deliverance, he's really not going to deliver in a longer term way for about four decades, which is a long time, right? Long time. It makes me think about previous to that in 500 something, the Jews are in exile in Babylon, modern day Baghdad. They're in this area and they're living there and they hate the people and they hate the culture and they hate the music and they hate the language and they hate all of what they have to live amongst of these people and the Babylonians. And they're living there and they're crying out to God for their deliverance. And God shows up to them and he speaks through a guy named Jeremiah. There's a whole book written of Jeremiah and and it is God's word through Jeremiah. And if you read Jeremiah, it's depressing because he's got a lot of hard stuff he's dealing with. He had a rough go. But there's a verse in chapter 29 of Jeremiah when he's talking to these people in Babylon. And it says this, and and I want you to see it because this is a wonderful verse. If you've been a Christian all, you've probably heard these words before. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Isn't that great? That's the kind of stuff we put on coffee mugs, right? Just put on some worship music and like give me an out of focus rainbow and a coffee mug and I'll just, oh, come on, that is so great. God knows, because we read it like it's about us. God knows the plans he has for you. Mm, Yeah. And he's going to, for my welfare, which uh, the Jewish word like shalom, for peace, not for evil, he's going to give me future and hope. And, and believe me, I have read that, and I've believed it, and I've clung to it, and I've said, yeah, that is, amen, God. Like, I hope that is true, not just of the Jews in exile or whatever, but true for me. But every Bible verse has a context, right? You don't just pluck one verse out and go, like, this is, means just this for you. It meant something in the original context that it was in. Let me read to you the verse right before that verse. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Wait, hold up. If I'm in Babylon as an exile, a Jewish exile, God just said, you're there for 70 more years and then I'm going to do something. And I know the plans I have for you. I wouldn't even heard that part, like verse 11. I didn't hear that. I would have been stuck on the 70 years thing because I'm doing the math. Like if God says, hey, I'm going to take care, you're like, God, please deliver me. And God's like, I will in 70 years. How great does that feel? That's like your whole life. You're like, oh, cool. So I'm stuck here. And actually my kids are going to live most of their life here too. Like not exactly the deliverance I was hoping for. But that's, that's what it says because when God shows up and, and, and gives out justice, it's, it may not go like you want, and it may not be on the timeline that you want. Justice may not be as complete as you think it, it should be. I mean, if someone does me wrong, I want justice right away. If an ethnic group is, is hurt, I want, I, want, I want someone to fix that. I want reparations. I want someone to, 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 to fix what has been broken there. I want justice, and I want it now. When, when, when nations are doing other nations wrong, I want someone to punish them, and I want it to happen now. I have all these ideas in my own mind about reparations and justice and how we fix things and make things right, but the history of history says we are not good at this. We do not do this well. We do not judge this stuff well. And we don't get the nuances and, and, we, and we don't fix things. And so we rely on, on God to, to make things right in the long arc of history. And, and finally here, number three, justice here on earth is incomplete and should make us long for something more. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a book uh, called Eternity in Their Hearts. And there's some 
missionaries that were going into some spots in Africa, and they would, they would come into these tribes who had never heard of Jesus. And what they found out is, no matter where they would go, people have eternity in their hearts. They long for something. They know something's out there. They know something's great. And I know we're cynical, and I know we're American, and I know we have iPhones, but I know this also, that we have eternity in our hearts. We long for something more. We feel it. We feel like there's something empty. And every time, even when we get the most just thing happens, it's never satisfies. We're always longing for something. If you've looked around the world, you've looked around your own life, and you've said, God, please fix this. You've longed for a Savior. If you've ever done that, you know what I'm talking about. You want someone to come in and set the world right. And I've felt that. And you have too. And some of you experienced way more than I have of injustice. And you've seen it. I, I've seen it. I, I've told you this before. In a, in a young church, um, if I do a funeral, it's for someone who's young, usually. I've, I've done a funeral in this room for a 32-year-old. Um, we've had a funeral for a 40-year-old, a, a, a 17-year-old last year who was shot, a, a, a one-day-old. Um, like, uh, there's not easy answers, and, and, and you hear this stuff, and you see this stuff, and you walk with people in it, and you go like, when does God fix this? Like, I don't think this is right. And kids get cancer and people get shot and there are funerals and there's abuse and there's lies. And the book of Esther comes along and it doesn't exactly put a whole bow on everything and say, and then it works out and everything is great. We're still left longing for more. And here's the good news, I think, is that God is not done with this. He, he's not done with, I know there's broken stuff, but he, he hasn't, he has promised to set it right, but he hasn't yet. He has promised that there will be a day where there's no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. And as long as we're feeling tears, sorrow, and pain, it must mean that we're not there yet. But he's faithful and, and trustworthy, and we can trust that he is going to set things right. It, it kind of reminds me of, um, if you ever, uh, you go to a wedding reception, the best part of a wedding reception is when they say, and now there will be cake. You know, like dancing's fine, and they introduce the bridal party, that's fine, all that's great. But then there's cake. See, if you hang out long enough at the reception, they bring out cake, and, or cookies, or something, and it's awesome. Cake is great. What a great creation in the history of the world. I don't know what people did before cake. I mean, even France is like, there's no bread, let them eat cake. At least they knew back then to have cake a couple hundred years. Like, cake is where it's at. But if you think about it, the ingredients of cake are not so great. Like, it's fine, there's butter and sugar in there, but there's also like raw eggs and flour. And if you, were to, if you were to have cake during the cake process before it has been baked into cake and you were just like to dip in there and go like, I'm gonna have some cake and here's, here's a spoonful of flour or some raw eggs and flour, not so good, not so good. You're in, you're in it and what you want is a cake. What you imagine is the fluffy goodness with frosting on it, but what you have is flour and eggs. And it just isn't awesome. And, and I think a lot of us, I, I think when we're longing for justice, we're just living in that space of flour and eggs. We can see the cake. We can imagine the cake. We can see that th this will go somewhere one day, maybe. But we're living in this very incomplete thing. And we're like, this is half-baked or not baked at all. And we have to remember that God is in the process and he's, he's, he's doing something. How does he do it? How does he take us from the impartial 
or the, how do you take us from the partial justice that we experience here and now to complete and fulfilled justice in the long term? Um, that's what we will pick up next week and, and finish out this whole thing and, and talk about that. Let's pray. God, for everyone who uh, is eating flour right now and, and raw egg and, and wanting cake, uh, I, I pray that you help us to, to hang in there and, and see the process and, and wait and patiently wait even when we're frustrated. Um, God, I know there's a lot of that. There's a lot of injustices. There's a lot of the system is not right and the cards are stacked against us or, or um, there's a lot of I, I, I didn't get other people got away with things and, and all that. Um, God, we, we are not good at judging human hearts, including our own. So I pray you help us um, to be patient and wait on your time, timing. God, I thank you for the story of Esther that, um, that wraps up and, and shows us how you work behind the scenes, but even still leaves us longing for more. Um, God, may we dial into that more and, 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 and see that um, at work in, in our lives. We see your power at work as we saw your power at work in, with Esther and, and all those people there. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.